housekeeping off the top, you may have noticed that the Michael and Us podcast has some new art, a new logo, as well as some new uh, conceptual art for our Patreon and SoundCloud pages. We commissioned this art from the great Toronto-based artist Andrew Barr. Please hire him to do your art for you. Yeah, we went with this kind of uh, Sergeant Pepper-inspired uh, design, featuring just some of the characters uh, who, who appear in the Michael and Us extended universe. I mean, obviously, we couldn't get everything in there. I suppose there were probably facets of the show that, uh, you know, we, we, we couldn't capture in a single image, but uh, I thought he did an absolutely wonderful job. Points if you've listened to the show long enough to know who everyone in the image is. There's one that I actually can't get. <laughs> I'll I'll tell you who it is later. I know them all. By the way, folks, if you're not a subscriber to the Michael and Us Patreon page, patreon.com slash Michael and Us, we had a new patrons-only episode about the Kids in the Hall movie Brain Candy last week, as well as recent episodes on the new Ricky Gervais Netflix special and the Larry the Cable Guy classic Delta Farce. Yeah, for crass business reasons, we're going to keep announcing our Patreon on the free episodes because, uh, I don't know, for the three years, however long we've had it now, uh, we've routinely failed to do that. And I need to put my kids through college, folks. (laughs) I need to pay my dentist bills. (laughs) But in all seriousness, we've heard again and again from people who enjoy the free episodes that uh, they didn't actually realize we had a Patreon where you could get an extra episode every week, plus other bonus content periodically. So patreon.com slash Michael and us, if you like the show enough, that you want twice as much of it. Now watch this drive. Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage. Welcome back, folks. I want to tell you about an article that I was just reading. I recently picked up an issue from 1990 of the now-defunct Canadian Marxist film magazine, Cine Action. It was a magazine that was edited by Robin Wood, the great Marxist film scholar who worked at York University. I like finding old movie magazines, uh, you know, serious film magazines and looking through them because I'm sure it's this way with any kind of magazine. There's just so much scholarship, so much criticism and analysis that is just just exists in the yellowing archives of these print magazines and you can't you can't find it anywhere. It's a real scavenger hunt. There was an article in this issue, issue number 1920 by a young Bruce LeBruce. That name may be familiar to you. He's an underground filmmaker from Canada, but uh, when he wrote this article, he was younger and uh, he was mostly an academic. It's an article called Right Wing Chic, Adam Parfrey and R. Kern Fingered uh, by Brian Bruce. That's uh, that's the name he used before Bruce LeBruce. And the main subjects of the article are these two artistic phenomena that were quite popular in the underground circa 1990. One was a book called Apocalypse Culture, which was this collection of transgressive writing edited by a guy named Adam Parfrey. It was a real underground bestseller. It had like, you know, there there was an article called like an interview with a necrophile, you know, stuff like that. Uh, An article in it by Peter Sotos. And the other focus of the article is a filmmaker named Richard Kern, who has since become quite a respectable photographer for lots of, you know, glossy magazines, but at the time was making these, you know, as I said, transgressive underground films that trafficked in a lot of intentionally provocative and disturbing imagery. And the thesis of this article by LeBruce was that they signaled this disturbing infestation in left-wing artistic circles of right-wing aesthetics, right-wing ideas. I'll just read a short excerpt. 
all insults aside, Kern's films are good for something. They warn us of a recent trend in the, for lack of a better word, underground, towards the acceptance of the most reactionary principles in the name of free expression, aesthetic terrorism, in quotes, and transgression. The left, as a great, lumbering, institutionalized albatross, has become an object of derision for its inability to effect any real change, and deservedly so. But instead of abandoning altogether the obsolete notion of a binary, objective division of political affiliation, this new kind of revolutionary, again in quotes, has found cozy exile on the extreme right. In some instances, it may be construed, to be generous, as a case of going so far left that they're right. The line Adam Parfrey, for example, might try to feed you. Later, he goes on to say, A most irritating similarity between quotes from Parfrey and Kern is the whining tone, particular to certain straight white males, of craving attention. It goes something like this. All those left-wing bitches are getting all the sympathy, so I'll be a bad boy, and then they'll have to pay attention to me. In their own sick little minds, these poor boys become the persecuted ones and can't accept it when we tell them that there is just not room left for them on the cross. It's the new sensitivity for men. Uh, By the way, just a brief side note. I know that Richard Kern actually acted in LaBruce's later film, Super Eight and a Half, and LaBruce himself in, in I think, his first feature, a movie called No Skin Off My Ass, trafficked in a lot of uh, right-wing imagery, a lot of, like, Nazi imagery. Uh, So it's, so I would be curious. So you're calling out Bruce LeBruce, in other words. I'm not calling him out, but what, but, but what, I, what I am saying is if he were here right now, I would just be curious to ask him, like, what was your evolution on this topic? You know, do, do you have the same feeling about, say, Kern and Parfrey now as you did then? What changed? Did anything change? Was using Kern in the later movie an act of sort of appropriating him? I, I'm, I'm actually, I'm not asking out of any smugness. I'm asking out of genuine curiosity. But anyway, the main point, the, the reason I bring this up is because I had this uncanny feeling reading this in a current cultural context where in certain sections of the media, there's a great deal of concern about the influence of a guy like Peter Thiel, this right-wing oligarch who is apparently funding all of these transgressive, or um, I don't like this word, but for want of a better word, edgelord art projects in like lower Manhattan. There has, I think, been a disproportionate media attention towards this, this almost like fear that he's this like Pied Piper who's using these sort of downtown scenesters as a way to make right-wing aesthetics cool. And again, I think I think this is uh, an overstated fear. I don't think anything that he's paying for is really going to cross over into the broader mainstream. But even if it did, you know, reading this article, the concerns in it were the same, and the cultural context was very similar. You know, this article was written in a period, you know, 1990, the Republicans have been in office for 10 years. The Democrats at the presidential level look dead at this point. Well, and just more broadly, you know, the the preceding 10 years, there's been this great kind of unraveling of optimism and a sort of undoing of uh, ideas about progress that had existed kind of broadly in the decades after the war. There's a sort of reactionary current in the air. And, and you know, even a lot of people on the left, uh, you know, who still think of themselves as being on the left are beginning to downgrade their expectations and ambitions and goals. And Luke, you know, you could be describing 1990, or you could be describing 2022. Like, I mean, we're not coming out of the 
the Reagan era, but Joe Biden has been president for over a year and like he might as well not be president. Jeffrey Epstein died under peculiar circumstances and uh, the Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn movements were squashed. Well, and I mean, you know, similarly, something else that comes to mind, another parallel is, you know, in the 80s and 90s, there was also something of a trend of, you know, erstwhile leftists kind of moving towards, you know, the right proper or just moving towards the neoliberal center. You know, I mean, famously, there were a bunch of people who wrote for Marxism today in the 70s and 80s who became, you know, the sort of intellectual backbone of the Blairites, that kind of thing. And I think, you know, broadly speaking, you know, in the current moment, the disappointments and kind of demobilizations that came out of, uh, you know, the defeat of the Sanders campaign in in particular, if we're talking about the United States, you know, there's been a kind of great unmooring of people from, you know, what had seemed, you know, without overstating it, what had seemed like somewhat coherent political categories, ideological foundations, that kind of thing. There's been, you know, very much a phenomenon of people sort of moving right without really calling it that. Certain people people and and ideas that might have been broadly associated with, you know, something like the Sanders left becoming unmoored, uh, becoming, I think, more sort of purely reactive to things around them. And thus, in a sense, just being sort of enveloped by the, you know, what is already the pretty reactive cultural ecosystem that is the American mainstream, where the right triggers the libs, the libs trigger the right, and, you know, round and round they go. Uh, Everyone watches it as kind of infotainment on TV. Uh, Nothing really changes, except that everything just gets kind of gradually worse. You know, it's incrementalism, but in the wrong direction. You know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Anyway, it was interesting reading this article because it's like, I guess my my main point is this really does feel cyclical, doesn't it? I'm looking forward to in 25 years reading another article after some other defeat, you know, after things have gotten just a little bit worse after another period where it looked like they hoped they were going to get a little bit better. There's going to be a new article about, you know, the next generation of politically ambiguous provocateurs generating art that plays in respectable galleries and film festivals. I remember uh, when you first told me about this article, I mean, you made the point that I think is true, which is that there's actually another anxiety undergirding a lot of this, which, you know, really isn't the sort of uh, would-be high-minded political one that is perhaps, you know, implicit in, uh, you know, these kind of anguished pieces about Peter Thiel, which is more just that, like, people that are used to existing in a liberal milieu, they feel like, uh, you know, the sort of bourgeois activities that they like to do, they go to a a gallery opening or something. Well, there's a sort of assumption that not only are the circles they travel in exclusively uh, liberal or left, but also that they're the masters of cool. Like they work in New York media, right? They own cool, they own the discourse. And then all of a sudden, there are these wolves in sheep's clothing in their ranks who are uh, uh, taking coolness, perhaps even being cooler than them, but doing it from the right. And then you get these fear-mongering articles that are trying to turn this into some broader trend, like how this is indicative of some alarming shift that's happening all over the country, when really this is just a workplace dispute that's happening in New York media. It's like different groups of cultural elites just reacting to one another and then calling the result like a new aesthetic or a new trend. And also, I think it just speaks to like feelings of malaise and emptiness in in a society where like, you know, it may not be the end of history in certain ways, but it does feel like the end of history in other ways. You know, perhaps in New York media, there's this feeling of like, well, well, where's our Andy Warhol's factory? You know, where's our Gertrude Stein's salon? (laughs) Anyway, 
anyway, this fear of like all of these little Peter Thiel sleeper agents who are living and working in Manhattan. What's funny about this, as a, if we're thinking of it as a workplace dispute, is if you work at any workplace in the world, you will work with or encounter people who vote all over the ballot. And you just do that. You just work with them and you're expected to. And that's unspoken and accepted. You don't have to be friends with them, but like you just you just work with them. And it's totally almost beside the point. But in New York media, it's a, it's a very serious. You've got to be you got to be disavowing these people who are in the same workplace. You know, <laughs> I don't think this really fits in directly to this conversation. But a somewhat well, maybe maybe this is a pedantic point. I don't know, but that I that I'd like to make here. You know, there's this feature of of American political and cultural discourse. You know, that's built around the idea of of red states and blue states, and you know, I suppose purple states as well in the middle. And I mean, New York is pretty much you know New York, California, places like that. Those are pretty much you know your ur blue states. And one of the funniest things about this discourse is that when a state flips, for certain people, for one faction or the other, its position in the moral universe like also flips. So, I mean, you had those uh, those awful takes from, you know, certain liberal commentators uh, that you'd see throughout parts of 2020, where you'd have a news story about like the number of people dying of COVID in Georgia, which went, you know, pretty narrowly for Trump in 2016. I think it got like just over 50% there. And then all of a sudden, you know, when the Democrats won those two Senate races in Georgia, it was like, oh, uh, Georgia's good again. Georgia's a blue state now. And I mean, the whole thing is just so silly. This habit, this reflex of you know American cultural discourse, because I mean, there are probably uh, more Trump voters in New York state than there are in like several Midwestern quote unquote red states put together. I mean, I hate to sound like a, you know, a centrist pundit who's whining about, you know, polarization and divisiveness or something. But it is true that these schisms in American society and American culture are kind of wildly exaggerated by, among other things, you know, the electoral system. And by what seems to be this persistent reflex to talk about particular areas of the country in these very, you know, reductive and monolithic terms. I mean, it's a bit of a cliche to say that, like, we all live in our little community bubbles, but like, New York media is a bubble within a bubble within a bubble where, like, forget about New York State, Manhattan itself is probably 40% Trump voters. But to people who work in New York media, it probably just feels like overwhelmingly Democrat. And so then when there are like five or six podcasters and shit posters who don't identify as such it must feel like this almost existential threat to the fundamental goodness of the community anyway speaking of unreality today for the uh, for the first time on this podcast believe it or not we're gonna delve into the cinema of canada's greatest filmmaker i think that's fair to say canada's greatest filmmaker why not uh, i'm gonna say that i'm gonna call it right now bang scavel David Cronenberg, with his 1999 science fiction allegory, Existence. In the not-too-distant future, Allegra Geller has created the ultimate escape. The possibilities are so great. This is amazing. A parallel universe called Existence. Now I'm warning you. Going to be a wild ride. It taps into your deepest emotions. You're the power source. Your body, your nervous system, your energy. It unleashes your wildest urges. I can't help myself. I'm saying it. I feel a serious urge to kill someone here. Do it. It's just a game. But it's the first genuine threat to reality. It's a lot more fun when it starts feeling realer than real. And someone wants it stopped. 
I hadn't seen this one since I saw it in a second year undergrad in my film theory class. Uh, I believe the reading that week was Baudrillard. I couldn't tell you any more about that, but I believe it involved the simulacrum. Ah, yes, the simulacrum. Yes. I think it's fair to say this is kind of a cult film. Even though it came out in 1999, parts of it remind me of, you know, things that Cronenberg was making in the mid to late 70s, early 80s. It definitely had, I don't know, five or ten times the budget of uh, some of those movies, but... Doesn't necessarily look it, though. No, it doesn't look uh, super glitzy or glossy. There's a functionality to a lot of the Cronenberg movies, I think. The makeup, the gooey and the slimy stuff is always, you know, beautifully rendered, but the mise-en-scene is, I think, often purposefully sketchy, and just what he's doing with the camera is often just point-and-shoot. Cronenberg's been on my mind lately because he has a new one out, Crimes of the Future, which I saw a couple weeks ago, and I was a little taken aback by it when I saw it. I mean, it's pure Cronenberg. It's it's his first one in eight years, and I think I'd forgotten a little bit what it's like to be immersed in that Cronenberg world. He has movies that are more commercial, uh, slicker, more mainstream, but kind of the Ur Cronenberg movies have this kind of curious lack of narrative propulsion, if you know what I mean. They're often like a little bit dramatically inert. I don't mean that as an insult. Uh, I'm just sort of describing the vibe of them. I think a lot of them are sort of mood pieces more than anything. Uh, the, The acting in them is often very stilted and some of the performers seem a little disconnected from each other. Well, and when it comes to existence, I think there are pretty obvious reasons for that, which we'll come to. Well, with existence, so much of it takes place in this video game world, but uh, the video game world is not that different from just a normal Cronenberg world. We were talking while watching it about how he's the greatest Toronto filmmaker because all of his films, even if they're set in Toronto or not, they look like they are unfinished paintings. I mean, in this case, it's a video game world that's not a completed video game or that like any video game of this era if you look past the two main characters who are fighting or whatever the background is sort of sketchy and unreal the characters in it are sketchy and unreal and when he films in Toronto he clearly regards Toronto or really any Canadian city I think it's Montreal and Shivers he regards these as these places without history that were just sort of built without any sort of coherent strategy or idea and there's a sort of spiritual rot in that. Right. And they and they stand in as just, you know, generic cities, like they're settings that are really unmoored from kind of history or place. It definitely feels like that in Toronto sometimes. And that's why I think my knee jerk reaction for greatest Canadian filmmaker is David Cronenberg, because only he gets that vibe. Most of our most of our Canadian filmmakers want to make Toronto look good. Well, I was going to say it flies in the face of what is really the dominant impulse in, in Canadian you know, culture, Canadian culture cultural industry, which is... We're a world-class country. Yeah, We're a world-class hey, look, city. Canada, folks, Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, the oh, prairies. We we got the world's tallest freestanding building, <laughs> which isn't anymore, but whatever. <laughs> this is a digression, but the last time I went to the CN Tower, when you go up there, there's a little chart on the wall that has its history. And it was so funny. It said, you know, however many years it held the record for world's tallest building. Then it was world's tallest freestanding structure. And now it has the, the world's highest wine cellar. <laughs> And I thought, at that point, stop trying to impress me with records. Yeah, speaking of people scaling back their ambitions and expectations. It's like, I'm already impressed. It's a tall building. It's the tallest building I'll probably ever be in. And and that's fine. Yeah, we're never going to top Dubai. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about the plot of Existence. 
it opens in this video game launch event. The world's greatest game designer, played by Jennifer Jason Lee, is unveiling her new game. It's strange and also typical of Cronenberg that this event is taking place in not a fancy show space, but just it looks like a, a dilapidated church. It looks like the church that I voted in in the Ontario election a few weeks ago. Like it's just this completely unremarkable, uh, small community setting, which is pretty odd considering that in the first moments of the film we learn that this is a world famous game designer who's at the head of a company which is you know unveiling this revolutionary new gaming system to a select few who are going to test it out and video games in this world i mean this is a a near future world where instead of a game boy (laughs) you know or instead of a console you've got a thing that hooks into your body there are these fleshy pods that when you look at them, can't help but uh, remind you of certain sexual organs. And they plug in like an umbilical cord into this new orifice that gets drilled into your back. Yeah, it's called a bioport, and you sort of screw a little umbilical cord, or is it an umbilical cord, like into yourself. And so there are a lot of scenes in the movie of people saying, oh, so uh, wait, you you mean you've never had a bioport installed? Yeah, are you a bioport virgin? Yeah. But so everything about the game is is biological. You know, the pods themselves seem to be kind of living. We learn that they're grown. You know, they're like animals. They seem to be distinctive. Like they almost have little personalities. So throughout the movie, you know, people are just kind of, uh, you know, porting themselves into these things that look like the thing from a racer head. The inciting incident of the plot is at this demonstration, this launch event, everyone is hooked into their little biopods and they're all going to go under. They're all going to test this game. But then there's a terrorist attack. Yeah, Jude Law, who's doing security at the event, screens a guy for weapons, but doesn't catch this odd sort of non-metal weapon that he has that looks like it's made from bits of animal detritus or something. And he shoots her with what we later find out is a tooth right as the game is starting up. So she gets wounded. He's promptly lit up by two other people that are there. And then she and Jude Law go on the run, uh, you know, where they kind of remain for, uh, for the rest of the movie. And for the rest of the movie, there's a lot of ambiguity of what is a video game and what isn't. Right. And you mentioned the stilted quality of the acting and the dialogue. I mean, I think it's very intentional because, uh, I mean, from the very first scene, everything is kind of scripted and shot as a video game. The first shot that to me looks truly strange is when the two, I guess, security people, you know, light up this guy that's tried to kill the designer. It's extremely hyperbolic and kind of over-dramatized. They shoot way too many bullets. There's a stilted quality, even to their kind of body language. The dialogue in this scene, and I mean, then later throughout the movie, I think it kind of increases. It's very formulaic. It's riddled with sort of extraneous exposition like you get in a video game. Like if Mario goes up to Toad and Toad gives him some instructions about the next level. It's like that whenever they go to whatever new location it is, you know, the gas station, which is called Country Gas Station, where Willem Dafoe works, or where Ian Holm is working. Ian Holm does this exposition dump on them. Yeah, it's like, you know, you're playing Ocarina of Time, you're trying to get the giant's knife, you've run through the Lost Woods a million times to try to follow up to get the special mushroom you need, or whatever it is. You can't do it, you go back to the Goron character, or whatever it is, and he just keeps saying the same thing over and over again. Your princess is in another castle. That's that game, right? <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) Just the game is constantly breaking its own immersion by reminding you that it's a game. The movie is in turn constantly doing that. Many of the characters really seeming like NPCs who just have, you know, a few programmed lines into them. And of course, the game that they're trying out, Existence, is clearly an early access.
access game. You know, this group of people that they've poured it into it are supposed to be a kind of focus group. And so parts of it don't really seem finished. And like you were mentioning, a lot of the settings just have these kind of generic titles. Chinese restaurant, country gas station. To bring up Cronenberg's new one, Crimes of the Future again, one of the things that took me aback about it was it it was shot in Greece for financial reasons in Athens, but a lot of that movie takes place in this crumbling future dystopian society, and there are a couple of different kinds of settings in that movie. Sometimes the characters are outdoors and they walk in front of, you know, buildings that look like ruins that are graffiti strewn, but then all of the interiors are these blank empty rooms that don't seem to have any life or history to them. And at least I was watching the movie thinking, what is this society? What is the ecosystem that's connecting all of these disparate, extremely alienating spaces? Yeah, and many of them are just completely unreal. Ted Peichel, who's the Jude Law character, we learn he hasn't been fitted with the bioport. They have this encounter with Willem Dafoe at uh, the country gas station. Willem Dafoe, you know, first of many characters in the movie who appears to be sympathetic and then you know, is clearly just out for a bounty that's been put on Allegra Geller. He fits Ted with a bioport. So I suppose the main structuring event of the movie, apart from the fact that they're on the run and that there's this war between this new kind of uh, biology-based virtual reality and people who are against it, who call themselves realists. The thing that takes us into Act 2 uh, is that the two main characters actually plug into the game. They plug into existence. And from then on, things just get less and less real. Things are already kind of stilted and strange, but it being a Cronenberg movie, they get progressively weirder. And I think one of the most striking things about the movie and about, you know, the conceit of the game itself is that, you know, when when we think about the potential of something like virtual reality, you think about the various ways that kind of thing has been depicted in the past. I'm thinking about things like, you know, the holodeck in Star Trek The Next Generation, right? Where, I mean, the conceit of that is, you know, I think the, the conceit that most people would have when they think of virtual reality, which is that it's a blank canvas through which you can kind of escape the world as it is. You know, you can enact your fantasies. You can, if it's a particularly uh, lame episode of TNG, uh, go and be in, you know, uh, play play as Robin Hood or, or whatever it is, or or Sherlock Holmes or or Dixon Hill, who's the sort of make-believe pulp character that uh, they made up for Patrick Stewart to play in the first and second season and then dropped. That's what we think of when we think of virtual reality. But existence is not like that. The world of existence is not substantially unlike the world that the characters have, have allegedly left when they've plugged in to play it. Everything about the game itself, I mean, when they when they start playing the game, I mean, the most striking thing about it is that, you know, there are no clear objectives. It's not really clear, you know, who, who their characters are. But then right away, you know, having poured it into the game through these biopods, you know, one of the first things that they see are these kind of smaller versions of the same thing that are just being sold in something that's like a shop located in a barn where I guess the game begins. So the game's parameters are by design, not fantasy parameters. It's more a sort of hyper-real version of, uh, you know, the world that they've ostensibly left. I wanted to watch this movie partly because we've been interested in watching these movies lately, movies like Dark City, The Matrix, The Truman Show, that are distinctly like 1998, 1999. uh, All movies of identical (laughs) quality, by the way. 98, 99, virtual reality, utopian or dystopian visions. 
And I was curious how it would fit in with those movies. Uh, this movie came out, I think, a couple weeks after The Matrix, to which it has often been compared. And because I was curious how it would play in this current world, you know, one that is not only dominated by social media, but that is also bracing for the, the incoming metaverse. Well, you say bracing. I still think the metaverse is, uh, is not going to happen. I don't, think it's, I don't think it's viable. Well, be that as it may, you observed that the video game world in this movie is not marketable different from the real world. And that reminded me of when we watched that uh, little corporate film about Epcot that Walt Disney made. Walt Disney explaining his conception for this utopian theme park of the future where we're going we're gonna to build a better America in Disney World. And we're going to create a Disney city that shows how a city should be run. And you might think, oh, he's going to create a utopia where we don't have to work and we can all uh, uh, live our best lives. <laughs> not, not the case. Walt Disney was going to create a, a Randian world. Of- yeah, we're work was mandatory. There's no democracy. He wanted the governance to just be, he was going to basically be the Habesian Leviathan of this world and and be an all-powerful executive. So if and when the metaverse does come, it's not going to be a utopia. It's actually going to be worse than the world we live in right now. Well, just to substantiate my pedantic interruption a moment ago, I mean, this is this is why I don't think the metaverse uh, is going to be viable, because the whole thing seems like just an effort to commodify digital space, you know, because there are no more public assets to privatize. Everything running on empty. They're ripping the cables out of the wall, making, you know, movies about Buzz Lightyear's origins and stuff. So it's like, what's the next frontier of commodification? And, you know, as we as we're recording this, the market for, you know, fake money is collapsing. You know, the NFT market is collapsing as well. And the metaverse to me seems like just an attempt to create, you know, use value for those kinds of things. So it's like, you know, my brother used to play this game called Club Penguin on Miniclip, which was like, you know, I don't know, this is like 15 years ago. And in that game, you know, you had like a little penguin and it was like little mini games you could play but it was like sort of instant messaging it was kind of social as well and I remember he spent real money to buy like a table in that game that you know can't have been more than a few hundred pixels and the metaverse seems like just an attempt to scale that up such that you know Mark Zuckerberg is going to try to create you know a virtual reality where people are paying real money or I don't know maybe they're paying dogecoin or whatever in this pay-to-play world where you know what if you could get really generic furniture for when you're I don't know hanging out and playing, you know, fake tennis with your fake friends or whatever it is. And I just don't see how that's ever going to be viable. The proposition, what if you could have reality only more artificial, I feel like uh, there limits the attractiveness of that as a kind of, you know, commercial proposition. I mean, that's fair enough. My counterpoint to that is that the Metaverse 1.0, which is Facebook, is a utopia. (laughs) So check and mate. (laughs) It has already worked. (laughs) I'm feeling a little disconnected from my real life kind of losing touch with the texture of it. You know what I mean? I mean, I actually think there's an element of psychosis involved here. Yes. This is a great sign. It means your nervous system is fully engaging with the game architecture. Existence is paused! By the way, I just want to warn listeners, it's a it's a beautiful afternoon that we're recording this, which means that the band of trumpet-wielding buskers who play outside Luke's apartment are going at full blast right now. So, I don't know, there, there may be a, a fun little soundtrack to this episode. We'll see. Just to give you some of those Toronto vibes for the David Cronenberg episode. Yeah, I really hope it doesn't pick up. But speaking of reality being punctured, just a Toronto curiosity breaking the fourth wall of our podcast right there. Cronenberg was right about 
about the spiritual rot in this city, that uh, whimsical trumpet bands are just allowed to roam free. So to turn back to the movie, as things progress, it becomes evident that not only is the uh, world of the video game very much like the world of the characters of Departed, and, you know, there's a famous scene where uh, Jude Law pauses the game, you know, and they sort of are diving in and out of it at various points, although the sense in which they're meaningfully in or out of it at any time is, uh, is very much an open question. But it's not just that the uh, inner world of the game very much resembles the world, you know, that they've left uh, in appearance. It's that the actual plot of existence very closely resembles the events that appear to be unfolding uh, in the world that the movie first introduces to us. So partway through act two of the movie, uh, Ted finds himself at a place called Trout Farm, where uh, what seems to be happening is that they are harvesting the parts of various uh, sort of mutant amphibians, which they're uh, selling as food. That's the uh, that's the kind of uh, cover for this place. Uh, but it's actually a secret manufacturing facility for making these parts, which is going to be used to manufacture biopods by uh, what seems to be the same company that, that Allegra works for. We soon get hints that, you know, the company is actually kind of at war with a rival company, uh, but then there's also this realist movement which is against the pods and considers them very unethical because they sort of vivisect reality. Everything becomes unnecessarily convoluted. I mean, again, very much like a video game, people are constantly double-crossed. Characters seem to be one thing, they seem to be working for one faction, and then they turn out to be working for a different faction. I think in a very real way, uh, the film defies a definitive interpretation. I don't think the point of existence is for you to, you know, put it together like a puzzle and figure out where the world of the game begins and ends. But insofar as, uh, you know, the film has anything to say about the game, it mostly comes through in the dialogue between Ted and Allegra. Ted, of course, is is trying out the game for the first time. And so he, he says things like, uh, we're both stumbling around together in this unformed world whose rules and objectives are largely unknown, seemingly indecipherable, or even possibly non-existent, always on the verge of being killed by forces that we don't understand. Uh, to which Allegra replies, sounds like my game, all right. To which Ted replies, that sounds like a game that's not going to be easy to market. And she says, but it's a game that everyone's already playing. Uh, there's one other exchange like this. I think it's in the same scene where, you know, Ted is commenting on the fact that the characters, uh, even the characters they're playing, so the playable characters, uh, actually have these prompts. They develop these uncontrollable urges to do various things, uh, to speak various lines, to kill various adversaries, to start having sex at one point. And so he remarks, you know, free will is obviously not a big factor in this little world of ours. Uh, and she he says, it's just like real life. There's just enough free will to make it interesting. So again, I don't think there's a definitive interpretation to be offered here. I don't think that that's what the point of the movie is. We're not here to crack existence for you like it's a puzzle. To me, the key to understanding the movie really comes at the end, where everything in the movie resolves itself by becoming a perfect loop. So towards the end, Allegra and Ted unplug from the game, you know, within existence, a development unfolds where Allegra's biopod appears to have been in Affected. It's speculated that this was the Willem Dafoe character at the gas station who double-crossed them, fitted Ted with an infected bioport, the bioport factory that's for some reason in a barn that they appear to be at, itself suffers a kind of terrorist attack, but then there's a twist in that as well, where the biopod that this realist agent has come to destroy explodes and unleashes spores everywhere that infect everything in the facility. They unplug from the game uh, to find that her quote-unquote real 
real pod uh, is actually infected. And if all of this sounds extremely convoluted, that's uh, because it is convoluted by design. There's what I think is an almost intentionally funny scene, a kind of confrontation between the two main characters at the end, where, you know, in a further twist, Ted has been out to kill Allegra all along. She then double crosses him and throws up her hands and says, oh, I've won the game. So it's at this point that the movie, you know, as it were, kind of resolves itself uh, and and completes itself uh, in what turns out to be a perfect loop. The characters, not just our two main characters, but all of the people who seem to be NPCs in the world of existence, uh, wake up and they're in a setting very similar to the one uh, in which the movie opens. Except they're now playing a game called Transcendes. Allegra, it turns out, uh, is not actually a game designer. There's another guy uh, who's been the guy from Trout Farm. He's also been playing the game with them. You know, he's a world-famous designer. Toronto's own uh, Sarah Pauly is in this scene. She plays kind of his, uh, his assistant or someone else that works at this company. And our final twist, spoiler warning, is that Ted and Allegra reveal themselves to this new designer as members of the realist movement who are out to kill him. Uh, So they assassinate him uh, in front of everybody, proceed to leave where they encounter another character who they've shot in a previous scene, the scene in the Chinese restaurant. And maybe we can just drop the conclusion of the film in here. No, 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 you don't have to shoot me! Hey, tell me the truth. Are we still in the game? So the movie resolves itself uh, ambiguously. As I've said, there's no definitive interpretation. I think there there are no clues about, you know, when the game uh, begins, when it ends, uh, whether the whole movie has taken place inside of the game, whether Existence is real or Transcendence is the real game. Establishing the frontiers of reality in this movie uh, is, is not really the point. I think the real innovation of this movie is that there's really no narrative or capital T truth at all. The whole thing is meta-narrative. From the first scene to the last scene, everything resolves itself in a perfect loop. None of the characters ultimately have real selves that can be identified. It's not clear who's a playable character and who's an NPC. It's not clear what the objectives of the game are. It's not clear what the parameters of reality are at all. Everyone in and outside the game, in and outside being very fluid and ambiguous categories, is just reacting to other things people do, to various prompts and stimuli, the question of free will and choice themselves being kind of up in the air. And folks, I just want you to know that this is a very difficult point to make because the brass band outside is currently butchering Stevie Wonder. Right. I am finding that very distracting. I have no idea whether it's going to pick up on mic or not. Anyway, in thinking about what this movie from 1999 might have to say about our current moment, my thoughts actually turned to uh, an article I published earlier this week in the Toronto Star, which I'm assuming, you know, Will, who, who reads everything I write, uh, you know, definitely, uh, definitely read and has thoughts on. Uh, I, I agree that polling is bad. <laughs> so it's somewhat self-interested, obviously, of me to bring this in. But I mean, basically, I wrote this article that was hooked on Ontario's recent election. And essentially, the complaint of the article is that polling, you know, which, you know, at one point was, I think, a, a kind of minor feature of, uh, you know, electoral politics. You know, it was, it was something that political parties used, uh, you know, somewhat privately to think about their messaging, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, you know, eventually it made its way uh, into newspapers. But, you know, again, as sort of a just part of the, the broader mise-en-scene of politics. Um, and by the 1990s, it had started to become a lot more uh, ubiquitous. And of course, 
in the present day, and you know, this extends far beyond uh, Ontario's provincial election. I mean, polling is just everywhere. It has seeped into every part of political discourse. And if you've ever seen Will during, you know, a State of the Union address where networks will sometimes have like a little poll running at the bottom. They've got a focus group of people who've got a button that says yes and a button that says no. And yeah. you can see Press that- the happy button, press the sad button. And so when the president is doing One the, kid like, loves the muscle guy. <laughs> right, 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 right. When, so when the president is saying, and our troops deserve the best equipment in the world when they're fighting for freedom, and then all the lines go up. Yeah, what, whatever, whatever the stupid thing is. And I mean, within the context of elections themselves, you now have, you know, just these, these momentum narratives, which have almost just, which essentially take over the way everything is, uh, is, is framed and discussed. I mean, to the point where, you know, as I pointed out in the article, in the recent Ontario election, you know, various of the major parties were, you know, they had operatives constantly kind of leaking polls to the to the press to try to drive particular stories. Uh, this is filtered down to the level of individual constituencies where you have people promoting polls often of extremely dubious quality and things like that, uh, that are just supposed to be about like, oh, look, uh, look who's ahead in this riding. So uh, ergo, you should vote this way. And so I think that this is one of the, the major contributing factors to, you know, the, the sort of unreality of politics today. The fact that everything is kind of reacting to something else. Everything is part of an abstract meta narrative. And you can go through an entire election campaign and find yourself asking at the end, like, okay, when did like the, the real election happen? It just sort of seemed like the whole time everyone was talking about sort of horse race stuff. You know, the public is sort of being endlessly told what it thinks before it's actually had a chance to formulate any kind of real opinion. And the whole thing just goes round and round in an endless and self-perpetuating loop. And I think to some extent, we can scale that up to culture at large. You know, in the absence of grand narratives, in the absence of kind of, uh, you know, deep foundations for political and cultural life that might have once existed, it increasingly feels like, you know, all we have is is meta narrative. And in politics and culture, you know, as, as we were kind of talking about right off the top, we have different niches engaging in a kind of quasi-gamified struggle, you know, partly driven by social media, TV ratings, things like that, you know, much of which uh, is kind of kayfabe and doesn't ultimately have a huge impact on the kind of legislation that gets passed or anything else in the real world. And so watching Existence, which is more than 20 years old at this point, those are the thoughts that are prompted for me, which I think speaks to what a great movie it is. Because most of the games that it's in conversation with, you know, are games from the 1990s, which, you know, did have all of these kind of prompts and, you know, were very formulaic in many ways, did all these things that kind of broke their own immersion. The fact that almost a quarter century later, it seems to have a lot to say about the current moment, I think speaks to why it's such a great film. 